Betty Coed has lips of red for Harvard. Betty Coed has eyes of blue for Yale. Betty Coed has blank, 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 blank for Indiana Polytechnical Institute. Betty Coed, that was censored, of course. We've got a lot of problems. Radio hasn't yet uh, grown up. But uh, Betty Coed has, friends. Oh, this is Uncle Wiggily once again, friends. And uh, we're here tonight wearing our clogs, and we're all ready to give you a big, fat, old, wonderful, fantastic, exhilarating clog dance to get the week off to a running start. Uh, bring it up there, Donald, please. Betty Coed has lips of yeah, I know it's Monday, but I'm just doing this to nudge you. <laughs> Stinking Monday. Out, out. Crummy Monday, out. You know, you know, I have a feeling that one of the great public services that could be performed by um, an altruistic organization would be if every Monday, just before Monday gets underway, before it all starts again, the whole week begins and the, the battles start and the phones start ringing and the luncheons start being held and the memos start being sent. You Are you aware right now, at this moment, Don, right this very minute, there is many an upper echelon in New York City, an upper echelon of the uh, boss types that are preparing the Christmas parties that will be held throughout New York and throughout all major metropolis areas in the United States. And I would also like to point out, too, that they are also preparing other plans. Do you know that the Christmas time is the traditional time for laying plans as to who's going to get fired. Who is going to get... Isn't that true, Don? That the, oh, I, I know this for... <laughs> listen, I've been in many a... Oh, listen, I've, I've, I've been in many a Christmas party when you could already see those scattered throughout the Yuletide singing throng. You could see them, their faces gray, knowing full well that they will not live to see another Christmas party, at least on that payroll. This is an old American tradition, so would you please give us a little American music there, Don, to celebrate this month? Yes. And so tonight, we celebrate December. We celebrate the month that many of you will be spending, the last month many of you will be spending, with your present employer. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's many an executive who believes that he's preparing to fire somebody else who is in turn being prepared for the firing block. Right, Don? Oh, yes. 
You never know. Happy Christmas, happy Christmas, happy Christmas party, all you day. Get drunk and pitch your boss's secretary and chase his wife up and down the air shaft. Terrific. If you reset that down, we'll keep that here in abeyance because we figure may, we may need it. You know, I've, I've always felt, though, that one of the great public services that could be performed by, by any organization, you know that uh, all, over, all over the country now they've got this uh, service where if you're prepared to jump off the window ledge, you can dial a prayer. Have you seen that, Don? Just dial a prayer, you know, and somebody gives you a nice, friendly word. <laughs> I like the idea of a taped prayer. And uh, you can also dial, in certain cities, you can dial a psychiatrist. Yeah, if at 3 o'clock in the morning you wake up and you feel this fantastic desire to go uh, strolling out in the night air without your pants on, or if you feel a fantastic desire to grab a meat cleaver and kill everybody in the neighborhood, you can dial a psychiatrist. And uh, this tape will listen to you. Now, we've also got other services. You can dial weather, and uh, they'll give you a tape, tells you what the weather is. You can dial the time, they'll give you the time. In some cities, you can even dial, and you can get the news headlines, you know, they'll just give it to you automatically. But I don't know of any place where they have a special Monday service, a free service, that you can dial, and they will get the week off to the right start. By telling you, say, uh, a, a bad joke. Or, uh, <laughs> do you know that, that, uh, that, that uh, since it is Monday, we might as well get right down to the basis. Do you know, Don, that, that before, before every cabinet meeting, or at least a large number of them, I don't know whether it was true of every cabinet meeting, but before most cabinet meetings, particularly at times when things were really black, I mean, really down times, uh, the late President Roosevelt would open the cabinet meeting by reading the work of one of America's great humorists. He always carried this guy's books around with him. And uh, before the meeting was set to, to, to start, you know, when they, they had some terrible thing going on, like, like it looked like Hitler was going to take over the world and Mussolini was going to take over the rest of the world and, and uh, Hirohito was going to take out the outer firmament, uh, FDR would, uh, would stand up before the, uh, the cabinet members and he would read the work of this guy. And the odd thing about it is that the guy himself, the man who wrote this stuff, never knew it. He did not know this until years later and he was astounded when he found out that this, that this had happened. And the name of the guy, of course, is George Ade. And I think I can do no better service to get this December uh, week started, underway, than to read a couple of selections from George Aid. Would you like to hear some of his stuff? 
one of the great, truly uh, American writers who wrote about American life, but wrote about it in a way that nobody else has ever since written about it. Uh, you know, most people write about a, a little localized situation. For example, S.J. Perlman, will, uh, he writes with a distinct Eastern New York point of view, very distinctly. Uh, most humorists have a, a circumvented point. It's kind of narrow, see. But, but uh, George Ade wrote about American life. If you bring me a little of that American music, I will introduce a selection, a typical selection of George Ade. The, the kind of stuff, in fact, this happened to have been one of FDR's favorite George Ade pieces. This one that I'm going to read right now was read during World War II in some of the worst, one of, some of the worst periods of that fantastic era. Bring it up there. You know, there's, uh, I, might, I might add, by way of a prelude, that as an American who has traveled all over the world, I think that the American character, and I think that the way America is, the way we live, what we think about and like, is as distinctive from the rest of the world as, let's say, the Eskimo is. <laughs> I mean, you know, we and hardly anybody ever writes about what it's like just to be an American. You know. The name of this is The Fable of the Boston Biologist and the Native with the Blue Hardware. Down in the Ague Belt, Mr. Aide begins, down in the Ague Belt was a town called Miasma. It needed paint, sidewalks, toothbrushes, and Bibles. Everybody in Miasma believed that the sun rose just on the edge of Widow Clevison's hog lot, and sat over on the yon side of the sand ridge. While the residents were standing around on the warm side of the general store so as to get shut of the daily chill, they would feel sorry for folks who had to put up with Brooklyn, an old point comfort. Now it so happened that a Boston biologist had been in those parts collecting amphibious fauna. The natives called them vomits and sarpentile insects. <laughs> One day... The biologist sat on a long-waisted truck at the station platform and waited for the train that was to carry him to some place where he could get beans properly cooked. He had his satchel between his legs and was reading the numbers on the freight cars in order to entertain himself. Presently, a native appeared and walked back and forth in front of the Boston man. The native had a saffron complexion and wore high-heeled boots. Every time he stepped, there was a muffled castanet effect caused by the quinine tablets. Everyone in miasma took quinine, except the Boston biologist, and he called it quinine. The native wore on and about his person, and somewhat exposed to view, a forty-eight caliber shooting iron, a bowie knife large enough for spading the garden, and several rows of very large cartridges. I reckon we got the purest climate and the noblest people on God's green footstool, remarked the native pausing in front of the biologist. Don't say different, am I? I may have to gallop right through you, Mac. Uh, life is very sweet to me, said the Boston man. I'm just beginning to get my golf score below 120, so I will not contradict you. Only, uh, I would like to ask. Come on with it, said the native. I would like to ask who held you while they strapped all those Chatelaine effects on you. I wear these whippings in order to protect my honor, replied Mr. Janders, for such was his name. Uh, 
Your honor must be hard-pushed if you have to tote such an extensive kit with which to defend it. Observe. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like the South today? <laughs> Observe the Boston man. Well, let me tell you, I got a reputation that reaches up and down the road, said Mr. Janders. I've never been curried below the knees. I'm long and woolly. I got seven or eight fiery nostrils and holes bored for more. I'm pies and ivy. It can't be handled. I hate to talk about myself, Mac, but I must say I'm a brave man. At that moment, the train pulled in, and the Boston biologist hurried aboard, resuming the conversation as he leaned out of the open window of the car. You say you're a brave man? he asked. You heard me, replied the native, picking his teeth with the bowie knife. What is your definition of a brave man? asked the biologist. A brave man is one who ain't afeard to die, answered Mr. Janders. <laughs> well, therefore, I judge that you are not afraid to depart from miasma and take your chances, said the biologist. How long have you lived here? Twenty-seven year, was the reply. The Boston man looked across the street at the dun-colored hotel propped up by the comatose livery stable. Near at hand was a pool of green water within which the bacilli were croaking loudly. The skyline was a row of red clay hills pin-feathered with dying saplings. A brackish odor of moonshine whiskey tingled in the warm air, and over the whole dejected landscape lay a soft pall of the real Simon Pure malaria, the kind that can be put up in tins and sent from place to place. You have lived here 27 years, and you're not afraid to die, said the Boston man reflectively. You know, I don't blame you. If I had lived here for 27 years, I would not be afraid to die either. In fact, I think I might be downright anxious to die. But the crafty biologist did not, re did not release this body blow until he was good and sure that the train had started a move and was on its way for sure. The infuriated native had to take his chances with a moving target. So instead of plunking the man from Boston, he made a wing shot on a state senator who was riding on a pass. Still, it was taking an awful chance. If that little page-and-a-half story doesn't describe the whole South better than anything I've ever read, even including Faulkner, <laughs> I'd like to see where. Oh, by the way, there's a moral to that fable. That moral, friends, reads something like this. Home is where the heart is. <laughs> oh, man. What a, what a description of, of, of a southern town. I mean, just, just think of that description. Near at hand was a pool of green water within which the bacilli were croaking loudly. The skyline was a row of red clay hills pin-feathered with dying saplings. A brackish odor of moonshine whiskey tingled in the warm air, and over the whole dejected landscape lay a soft pall of the real Simon Pure malaria, the kind that can be put up in tins and sent from place to place. Uh, speaking of malaria, this is WOR in New York. And, uh, oh, man. <laughs> you want to hear another, George Aid? I'll tell you, this. Uh, to me, this is the way to get a week off. Oh, we've got a couple of commercials. Kid writes to me and says, Dear Shemp, I always thought our school had no class. He writes from New Jersey. Boy, was I ever wrong. I was walking to school the other day, 
And entering the faculty parking lot was a sleek, magnificent Rover 2000 TC. Entering our school's parking lot. What an automobile. A terrific vehicle. There's nothing in America to compare with it. Oh, man. I'll tell you, the entire faculty went up 17 points in my estimation when that Rover 2000 TC entered the faculty parking lot. I'll tell you, when you really start to worry is when Rover 2000 TCs begin to drive into the student parking lot. Talk about an affluent society. If you're a teacher out there and you want to really make it with the kids in your class, friend, you better investigate the Rover 2000 TC, a magnificent machine. Send your name and address to Status here at WOR. <laughs> we'll send you a picture of this beautiful car. It's British, and it's made to go. Boy, let me tell you, the more I fool around with this KLH Model 21, the more convinced I am this is one of the finest pieces of electronic gear that I've ever owned, and I've owned thousands of dollars worth of that kind of stuff. And if you're looking, now I'm serious, if you're looking for a fantastic Christmas gift for somebody who really is important to you, I would suggest that you contact the Electronic Workshop as soon as you can, 26 West 8th Street, and their number is Gramercy 30140. You give them a call. They're open until 8 o'clock every night, and ask them about the KLH Model 21 FM receiver. $79.95. It's a two-year unconditional guarantee, fully transistorized, and one of the most beautiful radio sets ever built in this country. That's the Electronic Workshop, Gramercy 30140, KLH. We have a note here that says, Leave it to Rotor Broil to come up with the best buy in the most wanted gift for the holidays. The open sword-handled electric knife, the fabulous Le Chef by Rotor Broil. This is the knife that you grip like a sword, but with several exclusive Rotor Broil features. Not one, but dual safety push buttons, locks for off, Unlocks for on, blade ejector button, deep serrated stainless steel blades that slice everything sliceable. <laughs> Special Roto-Broil balanced handle. Nothing, even by Roto-Broil, comes close to this magnificent Le Chef open sword-handled electric knife at the special Best Buy price. This is the quality appliance that you see featured in the magazines and at Corvettes. It gives it to you not for last year's $12.95 price, but for an incredible $9.95. Don, watch. Not for, but for an incredible $9.95. Bring it up there. Only in America. At this price, you get the Roto-Broil open sword handle Le Chef for less than the price of an ordinary electric knife. Ask for the Roto-Broil Le Chef at all EJ Corvette stores and other fine stores. Only $9.95. A product of RBA, famous Roto-Broil Corporation of America. Only in America can you get an open sword-handled electric knife for $9.95. That's a particular American crotchet. Did you hear about the, the new electric fork you can buy? <laughs> Man. Oh, George. You want to you hear one of my favorite George A's? You know, the reason, the reason I'm reading these, you know, I'm... All of a sudden, it's December, and you're getting that. I, I'm, I'm speaking personally. You're getting that, that in between, blah feeling. You know, it's not quite, it's not quite Christmas time, and everybody gets that excited feeling around Christmas time, and it, it, it seems like summer is 17 million years away, and last summer has disappeared completely, and winter hasn't started. Oh man, let's see. Here's one of my favorite George Aids. 
And, uh, you know, uh, one more thing, too, uh, about this George Aid book. Uh, I've gotten a lot of, of letters from kids in the last couple of months asking about where they can get copies of the anthology that I did back in 62. Uh, I'm reading from the anthology, which I put together. I spent a couple of years of work on this thing. It's called The America of George Aid, and don't ask me where you can get copies of it. I don't know. I don't even know whether it's in print yet, but uh, it's too bad. He should be. Here, for example, is... Uh, now, wait a minute. If I can find the one that I'm looking for, The Fable of the Wise Piker, who had the kind of talk that went. The Fable of the Good Fellow, who got the short end of it. Here, here, here's one. Here's a typical one. Of my, I don't know why this appeals to me, uh, this particular one. It's, it's a special... Maybe it's because one time I spent a three-week period working in a drugstore. But uh, this particular George Aid fable appeals to me particularly, and I think, again, it describes a phase of American life that is hardly ever talked about in novels or plays you never hear about what it feels like, say, to be a guy who works in a drugstore. You just don't hear about these things. Nobody ever writes, uh, unless it's a funny bit that Jack Lemon is working in a drugstore for two weeks while he's working on his doctorate, and uh, he meets Shirley MacLaine there, you know, that kind of jazz. But I mean, the real, the real life of a drugstore man. Uh, Don, would you please bring me a little of that music in there, a little bit of it there, to set the tone. This is America again. This is the fable of the Bureau of Public Comfort and the man in charge. The druggist stood in his place of business, surrounded by capsules, hot water bags, perfumes, and fluid extracts. A man came in and said he wanted to look at the directory. Then he asked if Murphy was spelled with an F. He looked at the hairbrushes, whistled a few bars of the spring song, and went out. A small boy entered and wanted to trade two empty bottles for a piece of licorice. The deal fell through, because the bottles had a name blown on the glass and couldn't be used again. A woman came in and said she was waiting for a friend. She asked the druggist to give her a glass of plain water. She said she could not drink soda water because the gas got up her nose. It also cost a nickel. Another woman came in for a stamp. She did not have any change with her, but was going to come in and hand him the two cents sometime, that is, if he was small enough to remember it. The next man came in was a man with hardly any chin. He wanted a free sample of liver pills and an almanac telling the date of the Battle of New Orleans, when the sun rises, and why the chicken crosses the road. It was free. After him, there came a man who was in a hurry and wanted to use the phone. He was vexed when he learned that Skinner and Skinner did not have a number. He asked the, drug he asked the druggist why. The druggist said he was sorry. He would see to it that the man, if the man came in again, he would see about it. Soon after that, two little girls came in on a run, helped themselves to picture cards. They left the door open. And a boy in overalls stepped in and asked if he could hang a poster in the window. The druggist went back into the laboratory and got a large stone pestle. He was just ready to beat the life out of the cash register when a very elderly gentleman came in with a real prescription. The druggist stayed the blow. He cheered up quite a bit. This is where I catch up even on the day, he said. It was no mirage. He had to. And he did. <laughs> oh, the moral of that one is, don't blame the druggist.
Now, hold it there. Now, oh, thank you, Don. Now, now here's another one. Now, if I can find it here. Jeez, uh, some of these are so sad. Uh, yeah, let's see. Here, here's one of my favorite ones. No, I guess I better not. This, this is one. Uh, George Ade had a peculiar, large view of things. He never, he never laughed at people, really. Uh, he, he uh, like all true humorists, he figured he was part of the whole scene, and uh, all of his humor had a peculiar kind of kindness running through it, as though, well, this is what we are, you know. Might as well accept it, laugh at it, try to do something about it. But you know, that's the way it is. This, this is a beautiful little fable. And, and for, for your information, if you don't know anything about George Ade, all of these things, the one that I just read about from the druggist, was written in 1896, which meant that uh, 60 some odd years ago, uh, in fact, let's see, 1896, that would make it 70 years ago, wouldn't it? 70 years ago, what George Ade was saying is still relevant today. That sounds exactly like a neighborhood drugstore in 1966. Uh, the story about the South was written in 1901, 65 years ago, and that still stands as a very good description of the South. Would you agree with me, Don? That just the aura and the atmosphere. Listen to this one now. This was written in 1894, and uh, for those of you who don't really know George Ade, George Ade wrote almost exclusively in newspapers. Uh, he wrote these fables that uh, I'm reading as a daily newspaper column in a, in a Chicago newspaper. And in fact, he thought so little of them that he never even signed them for the first seven years. They just appeared as a little feature, no name, nothing. And all over the whole Midwest, people were reading these things. And in fact, they were beginning to gain a reputation as a genuinely realistic view of the world that was being gained through humor. And Aid was dumbfounded later when he found that... Uh, uh, his fables had slowly crept east, and people were beginning to read him in universities, one thing and another. And uh, even as far, uh, almost to the day he died, he never took himself seriously. He was just a guy that turned out these little things, and for that reason, perhaps that's why they're good. This is one of the earliest of the George Ade fables, and in a sense shows that wide perspective of humanity that a true humorist must have. You know, a comic really talks about a specific odd situation generally. Uh, he, he's a joke teller, whereas a humorist is a storyteller. They're two different kinds of uh, processes, and they often uh, are at, at odds, really. Now, this story is an example. It could be a very sad piece of business when I'm reading to you, or it could be very funny, depending on the, the specific attitude that you bring to what Aid has to say in this one. Uh, a little bit, little bit of that American music. The Stars and Stripes Forever played on a very rotten piano. This, as a matter of fact, would have appealed to George Ade, I think, better than anything we could have done. This is the fable of how the fool killer backed out of a contract. The fool killer came along the pike road one day and stopped to look at a strange sight. Inside of a barricade were several thousands of men, women, and children. They were moving restlessly among the trampled weeds, which were clotted with watermelon rinds, chicken bones, straw, and torn paper bags. It was a fantastically hot day. 
The people could not sit down. They shuffled wearily and were pop-eyed with lassitude and discouragement. A stifling dust enveloped them. They gasped and sniffled. Some tried to alleviate their sufferings by gulping down a pink beverage made of drugstore acid, which only fed the fires of thirst. Thus they wove and interwove in the smoky oven. The whimper of the faltering wail of children, the quavering sigh of overlaced women, and the long-drawn profanity of men, these were what the fool killer heard as he looked upon the suffering throng. Is this a new wrinkle on Dante's Inferno? He asked the man at the gate who wore a green badge, marked official, and was taking tickets. No, sir, this is a country fair, was the reply. But why do the people congregate in the weeds and allow the, the, allow the sun to warp them? Well, because everybody does it. Do they pay to get in? You know it. Can they escape? They can, but they prefer to stick. The fool killer hefted his club and then looked at the crowd and shook his head doubtfully. I can't tackle that outfit today, he said. It's just too big of a job. So he went on into town, and he singled out a Main Street merchant who refused to advertise. <laughs> Moral, people who expect to be loony will find it safer to travel in a bunch. What a chance! And now we read to you the fable of the caddy who hurt his head while thinking. One day, a caddy sat in the long grass near the ninth hole and wondered if he had a soul. His number was 27, and he had almost forgotten his real name. As he sat and meditated, two players passed him. They were going the long 18-hole round, and the frenzy was upon him. They followed the gutta-percha balls with the intense swiftness of trained bird dogs, and each talked feverishly of brassy lies and getting past the bunker, and lofting to the green, and slicing into the bramble, each telling his own game to the ambient air, and ignoring what the other fellow had to say. As they did the St. Andrew's full swing for eighty yards apiece, and then followed through with the usual explanation of how it happened, the caddy looked at them and reflected that they were much inferior to his father. His father was too serious a man to get out in Mardi Gras clothes and hammer a little ball from one red flag to another. His father worked in the lumber yard. He was an earnest citizen who seldom smiled, and he knew all about the silver question and how J. Pierpont Morgan done up a free people on the bond issue. He read the papers, knew all the world news. The caddy wondered why it was that his father, a really great man, had to shove lumber all day and could seldom get one dollar to rub against another while these superficial Johnnies who played golf all the time had money to throw at the birds. The more he thought, the more his head ached. End of fable. That was written in 1897. I ask you a question. Is that question that Mr. Aide asked still valid, or is it not? Oh, the moral of that one is... What a beautiful moral. You can see why aid is not more popular today, because his morals have meaning. His moral of that one is, don't try to account for anything.
Listen to this sad one. Do you want to hear another another great fable that uh, that also describes something, a phenomenon which we rarely talk about. In fact, if you were ever to suggest to people that this is true, they would call you a rotten, evil cynic. And I will ask a question after I finish the reading of this fable. And this is one of the fables, again, that FDR loved to read before the cabinet meetings in particularly black days of World War II. A little of that American music, Don. Quietly there, just sneak it in the background, the stars and stripes forever. The American world. This is the fable of the martyr who liked the job. (laughs) Once in a country town, there was a man with a weak back. He could put a grindstone into a farm wagon, if anyone wanted to bet him, the cigars. But every time he lifted an axe, something caught him right in the spine, and he had to go into the house and lie down. So his wife took in boarders and did the cooking herself. He was willing to divide the labor, however, so he did the marketing. Only when he had bought the vittles, he would squat on a shoebox with the basket between his legs and say he couldn't see why Congress was thinking of what they were thinking of and why. He had certain theories in regard to the Alaskan boundary, and he was against any Anglo-American alliance because Uncle Sam could take care of himself at any turn in the road coming right down to it, and the American people were superior to any other nationality in every way, shape, manner, and form as far as that's concerned. Then his wife would have to send word for him to come on back with the groceries so she could get dinner cooked. Nearly everybody sympathized with her because she had to put up with such a big hulk of a no-account husband. She was looked upon by the entire county as a martyr. One day, the husband was sunstruck, being too lazy to move into the shade, and the next day he passed away without an effort. The The widow gave him the best funeral of the year and then put all the money she could rake and scrape into a marble shaft marked at rest. A good many people said she was better off without him, and it was certainly good riddance of bad rubbish, and they hoped that if she ever married again, she'd pick up somebody that wasn't afraid to work and had gumption enough to pound sand into a rat hole. Well, there was general satisfaction, of course, when she became the wife of Mr. Gladden, who owned the general store. He built a new house, hired a girl, and had the washing sent out. She could go into the store and pick out anything she wanted, any time, and he took her riding in his new runabout every evening. Consequently, she was very miserable, thinking of the jewel that she had lost. Moral. Some people like being a martyr. In fact, some people figure it's the best job you can get. George Aide has another moral for that one, too. He says, if the woman thinks he's all right, you keep on your own side of the fence. Now, 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 I'd like to ask you what pertinence that has today. You know, I'll tell you, this is the age of the martyr. And there are more people who are going around playing martyr to the very hilt. I mean, on any given issue, there are 17,000 people 
who, who feel that the world is making them a martyr. And, and to suggest that the job of martyr is one that is admired and enjoyed by many people. In other words, people like to be miserable. A lot of people enjoy being harassed. And in fact, if they're not harassed, they figure that you're really putting them on. In fact, I'll never forget the time here a few years ago when, when uh, a friend of mine was involved. I'll never forget this because it, it taught me such a great lesson. A friend of mine was involved in a gigantic demonstration down in Washington Square. And, uh, oh, fantastic demonstration. And uh, they, they had signs. And the, the, the moment of D-Day arrived, and they were all down there. There must have been about 8,000 of them. It was back in the days, you remember when they were having the air raid, uh, uh, the air raid practices here? They'd blow a whistle and everybody had to hide for a while. It was uh, about eight or nine years ago. Not, not that long ago, actually. It was around the, the late 50s. And they had these air raid practices. Well, they were protesting, you know, they were protesting the atom bomb and everything else and the police and the whole scene. And so they, they all stood out there and, and waited to be arrested. They wanted the police to be brutal to them. <laughs> and about three cops came up and said, say, oh, what's the matter, fellows? And they said, well, we're not, we're protesting. We're not going to go in. We refuse. We believe that police brutality is the face. The guy said, oh, no, it's all right. You can stay here if you want. Just, uh, you know, I don't mind. It's all right. And one of them looked and said, you police rat fink! What's the matter? Because they were all hoping to get arrested. They were hoping to get hit on the head. They didn't do anything. And, and it suddenly hit me that, that being a martyr is a very self-satisfying thing today. Now, George Aid wrote that piece about 60 years ago, and he spotted a tendency in the human psyche, and particularly in the American spirit, uh, that, that has hardly been touched on since. You know, whenever a guy is being martyred, we like to think that he really is miserable and would like to be unmartyred. That's part of our romantic nature. But Aid saw something else in the martyr. He saw that many a martyr is, is totally undone the minute somebody comes and puts the fires out and uh, takes the shackles off of them and then gives them whatever he wanted. Then he's really bugged. Really. Uh, do you want to hear another one? of? of here's another AIDS uh, fables. And this is, this is another one that was written about, oh, this was written about 60 years ago. This is the fable of the Bohemian who had hard luck. Once upon a time there was a Bohemian, a brilliant but unappreciated chap, who was such a thorough Bohemian that strangers usually mistook him for a tramp. Would he brush his clothes? Oh, not he. Would he wear a collar? He was ashamed of himself? No, sir. He had pipe ashes on his coat and vest. He never combed his hair. He never shaved. Every evening he ate an imitation dinner at a 40-cent table d'hote with a bottle of writing fluid thrown in. He had formed a, a little salon of geniuses who were all out of work, and they loved to loll around on their shoulder blades and laugh bitterly at the ridiculous world. <laughs> oh, does that sound familiar? Oh, man. The main bohemian was an author. That's in capital letters. After being turned down by innumerable publishers, he had decided now to write for posterity. Posterity, of course, hadn't heard anything about it and couldn't get out an injunction, so that's who he was writing for. He knew his works were good because all the free and untrammeled souls in the spaghetti joint told him so. He would read them a little at a time about his own, about wandering in the fields with Lesbia, and then he would turn to a friend. 
<laughs> whose face was also covered with human ivy, and ask him point blank, is this or is this better? Is this or is this not better than that Thomas Hardy stuff? <laughs> There's no comparison, would be the reply coming through the foliage. Wandering in the fields with Lesbia. Lesbia would have done well. If he had wandered in the fields at any time, he would have been pinched on suspicion that he was looking for turnips. The sure enough Bohemian was a scathing critic. If Brander Matthews only knew some of the things said about him, there would be tear marks on his pillow. <laughs> and William Dean Howells, bah! Oh, he cut him apart. As he cut all the known authors of the day to ribbons. The way he burned up magazine writers, it's a wonder that they didn't get out after him for arson. One day, while standing on the front stoop at his boarding house, trying to think of someone who would submit to a touch, a flower pot fell from a window ledge above him and hit him smartly on the head. He was put into an ambulance and taken to a hospital where the surgeons clipped his hair short in order to take three stitches. While he was still unconscious, therefore unable to resist, they scrubbed him down with Castile soap, gave him a good shave, and put him into a snowy white gown. His friends heard of the accident and went to the hospital to offer condolence. When they found him, he was so clean and so commonplace that they lost all respect for him. Moral, get a good makeup. And the part plays itself. <laughs> I like that bit about the scathing critic. Bring it up there, Don. There is nothing better than George. Just, just, just to listen to the, to the, to the. Morals of George Ade fables is worth the price of admission. For example, listen to this moral. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home when it comes to wearing what you like. <laughs> Let's see, here's one. Anything to avoid dropping it in the basket. Don't you know what that means? Have you heard the old expression? Drop money into the basket? Yeah. Listen to this one. The only ones who need patching are those who think they need it. Here's an enigmatic moral. Avoid fruit. You want this one? One cannot rest except after steady practice. That's an American problem. That you have to learn how to retire. Here's another George Aid moral, which, by the way, I use in the opening of my book, in God we trust, all others pay cash, because I think it describes our world so completely. There are at least two kinds of education. And you can think of at least three kinds that you got that nobody ever talks about. Here's one. To ensure peace of mind, ignore the rules and regulations. Uh, moral. One smell of brimstone makes the whole world kin. Yes, indeed. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Moral, never play a system. Moral, the reaction is something terrible. Here's a great moral. When in doubt, try it on the box office. If you think you're so smart, play right. Listen to this one. 
For educational purposes, every employee should be taken into the firm. It is the upheaval of tough luck that causes a transfer of the family scepter. Hang in there, keep your knees loose, and just take a few deep breaths, and Monday will be all over for this week. And then we can start that long downhill slide all over again, friends. Good night. Good night in Fun City.